brought to you by Penguin. The pastor said something along the lines of that he had had a dream the night before where two tornadoes came to destroy the earth. And one of the tornadoes was homosexuality and the other was abortion. Um, And I remember just instantly kind of becoming enraged and feeling like I can't do this anymore. Hello and welcome to the award-winning Penguin podcast with me, Nihal Arthanaika. Here, we chat to authors about what inspires them and how they channel their creativity. Each episode, our guest chooses a selection of objects that have influenced their writing, and then we explore why. After the critical success of her first novel, Homegoing, my guest today was honoured as one of the National Book Foundation's Five Under 35 in 2016. Her follow-up, Transcendent Kingdom, published in the summer of last year, covers topics ranging from depression and addiction to the love in a relationship between a mother and a daughter via way of what it is to be African in America, all the while stoking the fire of that ancient debate of science versus religion. It is an immense pleasure to welcome to the Penguin podcast, Yah Jesse. Yah, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yah, You came, of course, to America at a very young age, but are there any fault lines between being a black African immigrant to America and being someone who's an African-American that can trace their history back to slavery? I came to the States when I was two. Um, I came with with my parents and my older brother. My younger brother was born here. It's funny that you say African-Americans who can trace their lineage back to slavery. I think one of the distinctions is that Africans can trace their lineage back to the continent um, in a way that African-Americans cannot, by which I mean that I grew up with a kind of cultural tradition that was stolen from from Black people here in America, Black Americans. And so I do I do think that that kind of created a difference or a distance, um, certainly in, in my younger years. And my parents weren't particularly well-versed in American history, let alone Black American history. Um, so there is a lot, I think, to learn about what our lives here might look like, given the fact that there was already, is already a rich Black American historical tradition here. How did that distance, as you called it, manifest itself? Um, well, I think at first it was uh, partly because we were so plugged into the Ghanaian and uh, larger West African community when I first arrived in America. We lived in Columbus, Ohio, which had a very large Ghanaian immigrant community. Um, my family was a member of the African Christian Church, which was half Ghanaian, half Nigerian. Um, so the distance in some ways was self-imposed. Like we didn't really even try, I think, to integrate with uh, the existing um, African-American community in, in our town. And then each place that we moved to subsequently, and we lived in Ohio, Illinois, Tennessee, and then Alabama, each place that we moved to subsequently, there were fewer and fewer Ghanaians until Alabama, um, where there was, you know, one other family when we first got there. Um, and I think that was 
that was the beginning of me really kind of understanding what that gulf had left me because now not only um, were we distanced from uh, the African-American community in, in Alabama, but we were also without Ghanaian community. Were there any fears about you becoming quote-unquote too American? I'm, I'm from the South Asian community and it's often the phrase is you're becoming too westernized. Is that something that you heard growing up? I do think that there there were fears about that, um, particularly, I think, you know, Ghanaians have like a, a very rigid expectation to be incredibly respectful to elders, um, regardless of whether or not those elders are, are right or wrong. So there was like a lot of emphasis on maintaining um, respectfulness above all else. Were there differences in the expectations placed upon a daughter and a son? Yes, I think so. I mean, I, I grew up in a pretty patriarchal community, not just Ghanaians, but I think Americans as well. And it's hard for, for that messaging to not uh, come through in your everyday life. Were you philosophically at ease with that? Or was it something that you railed against? I didn't have any examples of of how things could be different. Um, And I don't think my imagination was really kind of lending itself to the idea of a more egalitarian system within a family unit at that point. And so I wasn't really railing against it in any way, other than I suppose hoping to kind of find ways to experience myself outside of my family. Like I think I, you know, got into school and got into choir, like things like that, um, that kind of gave me an outlet where I didn't have to kind of uh, follow the rules of the family. Moving from Ohio to Alabama... Um, and leaving a community and all of the security and protection that comes with that sense of being part of a community. Did you feel that? Did you feel that you were being torn away from something that was familiar? I did. I mean, you know, we had already had, obviously, like a pretty major move coming to America. Um, And so there is already, I think, this sense of, well, if if we can't be home home being Ghana, than anywhere in this new country will do. I don't think I realized that there would be fewer Ghanaians in each place that we lived to until by the time I got to Alabama, I think I became kind of fully conscious of the fact that we were kind of living this this very isolated existence, an increasingly isolated existence. How did your parents then preserve the culture that they had grown up with? if indeed it was possible to do so? Well, my parents are are pretty amazing in that way in that I think because community is so important to them, they're like these magpies for Ghanaians, for West Africans. Like they would pick up the phone book and look for Ghanaian last names and call and let the person know they were in town. I lived in Berlin briefly and I remember I they came to visit and I took them to a museum. And when I got out of the bathroom, like they had, they were speaking um, to a Senegalese person that they had just noticed on the, on, uh, at the <laughs> museum. Like they're pretty incredible in that they can like find a West African <laughs> um, anywhere they are. Um, and so I think that was one of the things that they, that they did. Like we'll do what we can to, to make community. You've obviously been very successful, not just, of course, as an author, but academically predates that, going to Stanford, etc. 
Was that largely for you or for them? It was largely for me. Interestingly, like I think often when people um, hear that my father was a professor or uh, kind of look at my own trajectory, they assume that my parents were kind of tiger parents, um, but they weren't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they weren't really, you know. I think there was an unspoken expectation that we would go to college. But beyond that, I was the one who was incredibly invested in school and and kind of wanted to be successful in that particular way. What were the motivations that drove that need to be successful? Well, I think I just always really enjoyed school. Um, I was an incredibly nerdy child. And I think there was something for me really kind of comforting about having something again, that that was kind of outside of my family that I could be good at, that I could uh, focus on, that made sense to me. Like, I, I think there are lots of incredibly intelligent people who don't do well in a school environment. Um, but I was, I was one of those people who just really understood how to study and follow rules and listen to teachers. And I feel like it was as much about being good at that part of it as intelligence. If Ghanaian parents are anything like Sri Lankan parents, then especially where you went to college, the whole community must have known. Yes, <laughs> that's that's exactly right. And my mother did everything short of like take out an ad to tell people <laughs> that I had gotten into Stanford. <laughs> Look, let's get to your first object, um, Yar, which is a photo of a mouse with a fiber optic implant. Okay, very specific object. Tell us why. Yeah, um, so when I started writing Transcendent Kingdom, it was really kind of an opportunity for me to get to know the work of my best friend, Tina, who is a neuroscientist. And it was really that experience of walking with Tina through her lab, listening to her explain her work, um, which like Gifties centers around addiction and depression, where I thought that there, there might be something there. And as the project grew, as Transcendent Kingdom grew, occasionally she would send me these pictures of things like her behavioral testing chamber, but often it was pictures of, of her mice. And one day she sent this picture. Um, it's actually pretty adorable, but also a little kind of creepy sci-fi looking. I uh, used it in the book. And so there's a, an opening paragraph that says something like a mouse with a fiber optic implant on its head looks like something out of a sci-fi novel. What is it that excites you more? The detail of making a novel to make sure that the information, which some may regard to be incidental on first reading, is actually specific so that your friend could read it and say, okay, yeah, that's true. Or is it more about the emotion about the interaction between human beings? For me, it's more about the emotion. Um, it's definitely more about the interaction between the human beings, about the characters, what they're feeling and thinking. I think this particular book lent itself really well to having the research kind of filter through in ways that felt both specific and universal because there are any number of reasons why someone might be drawn to this particular field. Um, and so anything that happened in Gifty's life could be fodder for her work in some way. But I suppose this, the first goal was to have 
these characters, Gifty, her brother, her mother, feel like as real as as possible. And then the second goal was to be able to have the science come to life. Is your job as the author to nudge us to like Gifty or to give us the space to work out for ourselves what we feel about her? I hope the latter. I, I want to give the reader the space to work out how they feel about her. And I think one of the fascinating things for me about this book has been hearing people's responses to Gifty because it has been a really wide range. You know, when my older brother read it, he was like, I hate her. (laughs) Hmm. Um, A great friend of mine read a first draft and she was like, I just love this character so much. Like, it's an interesting thing to see people kind of work out their feelings toward her and to hear why they feel the way they do. Do you like her? Hmm. I like her because she's a person who thinks that she knows herself, but she really doesn't. So all of her kind of hard, harsh exterior gets pulled away as you read the novel and you can see how vulnerable she is, how much she's really struggling. You know, she seems like she's got it all together and she wants you to believe that she's got it all together, but she's struggling and that vulnerability Um, that she's so careful to hide from people. When you get to see it, I think it it makes her more human. It it extends your empathy toward her in this way that um, really moves me. What were the most difficult aspects of the relationship between Gifty and her mother to write? So many of the aspects were difficult to write. I think there's something really challenging about trying to write a character, uh, Gifty's mother, who is basically inert for most of the book. You know, she's bedridden, um, having gone through this second bout of major depressive disorder. And so, so much of how we see her in the novel is filtered through Gifty's experience of her, which is, of course, incredibly fraught. And her arrival into Gifty's life is the occasion for all of these memories um, that kind of plunge Gifty back into her childhood, which, as we see, was incredibly chaotic. And so I think of Gifty's mother as this mirror for Gifty. And the things that she reflects back, I think, are things that Gifty doesn't really want to see. It's hard even now after finishing the novel and and touring with it and thinking about it, like it's hard for me to think about who Gifty's mother is, you know, separate from Gifty. Like they feel so intertwined. And I don't know if Gifty would like to to hear that or, or know that, but their relationship is quite difficult, but also quite, quite close. What is your understanding of the openness with which the Ghanaian community talks about mental health? Um, Well, my understanding is that there isn't very much openness, um, certainly not around kind of naming mental illness in the same way that we might name it here in the West. Uh, I don't think I'd ever really heard anyone in my childhood in the Ghanaian community talk about things like depression um, or schizophrenia any mental illness openly and in a direct 
and named way and in a way that I think accepted it as illness. If I did hear these things talked about, it was always through the vehicle of metaphor and it was always kind of attached to God in some way. It was always a religious context, um, which has as much to do with growing up in a religious family as it does with, with being Ghanaian. Has your generation changed that, do you think? Or is there still a reticence to talk about these issues? I think my generation has changed it. I think there's so much more openness, um, so much more willingness, I think, to seek help when there's a problem. Um, You know, I can't really imagine any of my elders going to therapy, for example. But I know plenty of people, plenty of Ghanaians my age who are open about needing that. Let's move on to your next object, um, which is a song by the brilliant Scissor. Tell us about this. Yeah, um, I guess partway through working on this novel, Control came out and like so many others, I became obsessed with it. And there is a particular song and a particular line in the song. The song's called Drew Barrymore. And the line was, uh, I get so lonely, I forget what I'm worth. And I was thinking about how perfectly that sentiment summed up this character, Gifty, who had kind of effaced um, so much of herself in her loneliness that she had trouble connecting with other people or allowing other people to reflect back to her her worth. And so I I found that really, really moving. Um, I find that whole song really moving, but that particular statement, and it felt in some ways like what I wanted to do with this character and this book. There's a very distinct point in the novel where Gifty parts company, certainly with organised religion. Have you had that moment yourself or are you someone who still would identify as being a Christian? No, like Gifty, I I did have a particular moment where I um, decided to leave the church. It was the circumstances were very different from Gifty's, um, but I still remember the day. I couldn't drive yet, so I must have been 14 or 15. And I was at a youth service at church, and the pastor said something along the lines of that he had had a dream the night before where two tornadoes came to destroy the earth. And one of the tornadoes was homosexuality and the other was abortion. And I remember just instantly kind of becoming enraged and feeling like I can't do this anymore. Like there are so many other things that we need to talk about that we should be addressing, that that we should care about. And I'm kind of tired of these two things coming up over and over and over again. And so I this was before cell phones or before I had a cell phone at least. Like I went into the church office and I called my parents and asked if they could come pick me up. Um, And I never went to another youth service ever again, though I did still have to go to church with my parents on Sundays. But that was, that was kind of it for me. (laughs) I think that was the, the beginning of my realization that I was like coming into a political consciousness that didn't match with the politics of my church and that I couldn't, I couldn't square them. Like I couldn't figure out a way to reconcile them, um, and I didn't want to. How did your parents react to this rejection of the church? You know, interestingly, like even though they 
had always taken us to church and church was like such a um, important part of their lives. My dad was always very, you know, he's kind of, he's a post-colonialist at heart and his entire thing would be, even as the pastor was speaking to us, he would kind of under his breath and tweet, tell us that we wouldn't even be Christians. We wouldn't even be here had the British not colonized Ghana. Um, And so there was always, I think, this kind of challenge to the religion, even as we were practicing it. I don't think it was like a a big heartbreak for my dad for me to leave the church. Um, My mom, I think, is a different story because she she definitely, I think, is, is more of a true believer. But even with her, I think there was kind of an understanding that at that at that point, at that age, I could make my own decisions and decide for myself whether whether to believe or not believe. Let's go to an object. Tell me about a church hat and why you have brought that today as one of your objects. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I didn't actually go to the kind of church um, where these hats are often worn, but... When I think about the image of a Southern church, particularly the image of a Black Southern church, I often imagine a woman, an elderly woman in her Sunday best with this elaborate, beautiful hat on, the kind of hat that we think of as belonging to kind of a different time, a different age, um, but that's still um, still present in Black Southern churches today. Um, and there's a, a scene in the novel where Gifty wants to go to a service on campus when she's an undergrad, but she's still feeling, you know, this kind of unease about her relationship to God. And and so she decides to go with the hat on. And rather than the hat being this kind of extension of, of your worship, this kind of exuberant exhibition of your pride and your faith, the hat becomes a way to hide Um, And so she uses it to kind of shield her face. But when she gets there, she realizes that that nobody else has a hat on. So, of course, she's standing out. For me, it's like a kind of representative image of of delighting in one's faith that Gifty uses through her shame. What do you draw on for a sense of affirmation? Going back to Scissor's lyrics, to tell you what you're worth... Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I'm not sure. I think probably my friendships, my relationships, the love that you see reflected back to you as you as you give it. I think that's often where I find that kind of strength. Do you have an internal validation? Because that's largely external, isn't it? It's reflecting back at you. Yeah, it is. I'm sure I do have an internal validation, but it'd be hard to articulate where it comes from or what it is. Just a kind of confidence and knowledge that I'm on the right path or that I'm doing the things that that feel valuable to me. What part does being a successful author playing that? Because that is internal it comes from you you create these worlds for us I do um, create these worlds and obviously I've published these two novels but for me like writing is so like the reasons I write um, and the pleasure that I get from writing 
have so little to do with publishing and what it feels like to be successful. Like that feels very separate to me. And so the writing is certainly like one of the places where I find value. It's definitely the place that I attempt as best I can to create some semblance of order around, you know, just the chaos of being alive. But I can't imagine myself as any other kind of person than a person who writes. Like it's so integral to who I am and how I see myself. Like it doesn't even feel conscious or laborious in some ways. Like it's just what I do and what I've always done is write. In writing Homegoing, Yah, and Transcendent Kingdom, are there aspects of of human relationships and human experience that you want us to understand? Or is it a process whereby you are trying to understand these things and we are then privy to those thought processes? I think it's the latter. Um, I think often I am writing because I'm trying to get at something. I'm trying to better understand something. I have all of these questions that I want to find a way to articulate. I don't think that I can answer them. I certainly don't think that the book answer them. Um, But I think the process for me is trying to kind of tease out those questions in some way. And so any understanding that I gain through that process is certainly understanding that I hope readers will also also gain. But I think of reading, um, and I'm a big reader as well as a writer, but I think of of reading as being a, a very separate enterprise, like the pleasures of reading are so different for me than the pleasures of writing. And so I'm not necessarily writing in order to kind of try to teach something or impart wisdom so much as I'm trying to write in order to kind of collect myself. So we are side by side with you as opposed to being led by you in this process. Yeah, I hope so. Let's take a listen now to an extract from the audiobook edition. It's the moment where Nana injures his ankle playing basketball and the doctor has just seen him in the hospital. He didn't wait for any of us to speak. He just got up and left the room. A nurse came in behind him with some aftercare instructions and the three of us made our way to the car. I don't really remember much else from that day. I don't remember going to the pharmacy to pick up the pills. I don't remember if Nana got crutches or a brace. If he spent the rest of the day sprawled out in our living room with his foot elevated eating ice cream while our mother waited on him as though he were a king. Maybe all of those things happened. Maybe none. It was a bad day. But the nature of its badness was utterly ordinary. Just regular old shit luck. Ordinary is how I'd always thought of us, our foursome that had turned into a trio, regular, even if we stuck out like sore thumbs in our tiny corner of Alabama. I wish now, though, that I could remember every detail of that day, because then maybe I could pinpoint the exact moment we shifted away from ordinary. That was a reading of Transcendent Kingdom, written by Yar Jassy, and read by Barney Turpin. The audiobook is available to buy now, and there's a link in the program notes of this episode. So, yeah, let's go to your final object now, which is a journal. Well, when I thought about what I wanted 
this character, Gifty, to do how I wanted to kind of express who she was, I immediately thought of these journal entries to God. Gifty is a very reticent character. Um, She's, again, incredibly guarded and has spent so much of her adult life building these walls around the places, the parts of her that hurt. And so adding these journal entries, I think, was a way to add texture, um, a way to kind of see around the things that she was willing to reveal to us. And so it became for me like a way to show Gifty vulnerably without needing her to confirm that picture. And I myself kept a journal off and on over the years, um, but I was a pretty lazy journal keeper um, in that I didn't write every day. And so I have maybe one one notebook that, that covers four years, but they were the years of, uh, of my faith as well. And so when I go back and read it, uh, which I don't do very often because I find it really cringy, what I, what I see in those readings is the version of me that, um, that still believed. Um, and that child is so different uh, from the woman that I became, but obviously it's, it's still me. Um, and so I, there's something really, really lovely about that, even despite the, the cringe factor. What do you think remains of Ghana in you? Um, I mean, so much, you know, the food that I know how to make, uh, the the music. How's um, your jollof? <laughs> my jollof is not very good, <laughs> especially as compared to my mother, who's kind of the queen of jollof. Yeah. Um, <laughs> for for yeah. clarification and people who don't know about jollof, um, if there's ever a war between Ghana and Nigeria, it will be over who makes <laughs> the best jollof rice. <laughs> Um, That's exactly right. <laughs> so, uh, so for the people who don't know, just describe what jollof is. Um, it's just a, it's like a stewed rice. It's rice that's been stewed in a um, kind of tomatoey, peppery sauce um, so that it, all the sauce kind of coats the rice in a really delicious way. And you're, you're left with that. I can feel you drifting off as you think about your mum's <laughs> jollof. So, I mean, the reason I ask the question about what remains of you is it's it's interesting if you haven't been to a country in a long time and then you land there and they immediately know you're not from there. Mm, mm-hmm. And yet you feel that you are from there. Yeah. And it puts you in a very strange place, doesn't it? Yeah, you're you're exactly right. I mean, that experience is so unique to what I think of as the like 1.5 generation immigrant, uh, the immigrant who who leaves their home country um, in their in their youth. I think there is always a sense that I have of myself as Ghanaian that isn't in line with how Ghanaians see and think of me and trying to kind of keep that, um, that sense of myself alive and kind of build on it, you know, continue to make connections um, to to Ghana is a challenge that is ongoing that will probably last the rest of my life. Um, yeah, I hope you have enjoyed uh, our conversation as much as I have. I've got one more question to ask you, but before that, I want to speak to you listening to the Penguin Podcast. 
Don't forget to follow the Penguin Podcast, comment, rate, and most of all, share. You can also find us on your Alexa-enabled device. Thank you for that. Now, finally, we like to ask our guests about a book they love. Now, I know for you, we could be here for another 12 hours <laughs> just talking about books you love. So I am going to have to be really harsh and disciplinarian and tell me a book currently that is the top of your list. If I were to say to you, what book do you love? Sure. Um, currently, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments by Sadia Hartman. Um, Hartman is an academic whose work centers around the afterlife of the transatlantic slave trade. She uses this process that she calls critical fabulation to create this book, which is something of a hybrid that kind of hovers between fiction and nonfiction. Hartman uses things like police reports and sociologists' notes and photographs to try to reconstruct the lives of women who were living in and around Harlem and Philadelphia in the 1920s. Um, and she imbues them, I think, with all of the humanity and joy and um, what she calls waywardness that society tried to strip from them in its telling of their stories. And so I, I just found this book to be so incredibly inventive, so rigorous, so beautiful, um, beautifully written, and unlike anything I have read in, in years and years. Where do you find the time? <laughs> Oh, I mean, it's the thing that I love the most. So the the time kind of finds me for that um, for that particular aspect of of my life. Yeah. So lockdown has been perfect for you in that respect, I guess. You know, interestingly, no. I think lockdown has weirdly like made it harder for me to concentrate. Um, it didn't really change my day to day life so drastically. Like I I was always working from home, um, and I don't have children. Uh, I'm not taking care of like an elderly family member. Like there was, there was a lot of continuity, I think, between my pre-lockdown life and my post-lockdown life um, in ways that there aren't for so many people. Um, but the thing that has shifted, I think, is my attention span. I think it's just a, a consequence of the of the kind of general anxiety of this moment. Um, there's, it's hard for it to not affect. Um, affect you. And so I have, I've, I've been reading far less actually these past few months than I, than I usually do. More time to work on perfecting your jollof rice, presumably, <laughs> which you've clearly not used that time wisely. <laughs> yeah. You and, you and my mother would agree on that point. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Listen, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time to hang out with us on the Penguin Podcast. Oh, of course. Thank you for having me.